The very first story told by Luke after the events of Pentecost and the description of the community that was born at Pentecost is the story of a man, which we just read, lame from birth, now more than 40 years old, who daily sat sat begging at the beautiful gate and was healed by Peter after he asked Peter and John for alms. This story is told in great detail, and it actually extends this story all the way to the end of chapter 4. It's two chapters long. This whole week I've wrestled with this question, and as you may have picked up over the last three weeks that we've been doing with Acts, I've been wrestling every week. Willie James Jennings was right when he said this is a revolutionary book. But my question and my struggle was why this story? Why this healing of this man? Jesus had healed many lame persons during his ministry. There was the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. You likely remember the story of the paralyzed man who was led down by his friends through the roof in front of Jesus. And Jesus said, I forgive you your sins. And then he healed him. If a lame person were to be healed here in Broomall in 2021, we would consider that pretty spectacular. But if you read through the Gospels, it's kind of just a day's work. Even more fascinating is the thought that Jesus most likely passed this lame man as he went into the temple many times during his ministry because Jesus went into the temple a lot. And Acts tells us this man was placed there every day, and that was for at least 20 or 30 years because he was over 40 years old. Apparently, Jesus didn't see him, or he didn't see Jesus. But yet it's only now that healing comes 40 to 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. Why this miracle and this man now? Well, to tell you the truth, I don't really know. I don't have a definitive answer for that. This whole story raises questions at multiple levels. We don't have time today to even mention all the questions, much less, much less give any kind of real answers. So here are a few thoughts, hopefully in line with the theme of, as we're studying Acts, God's community in the midst of empire. Lately, I've been learning to read the Bible and particularly its stories from the perspective of the marginalized, the disadvantaged, the outcast, the stranger, and the alien. That's not easy because I, by and large, don't fit into those categories. I belong to a race, a class, a gender, a health, an economic status of privilege. I've never been marginalized or outcast. When we lived in Nigeria, I was not a native, and because of the English influence, they called me an alien. But that's just about as far as it went. And this week, I've been introduced for the first time to a genre of theology that I had not known before, and it's called disability theology. Peter ends always says every theology has an adjective in front of it, and I believe he's right. Here is a definition of disability theology. Disability theology is the attempt by disabled and non-disabled Christians 
to understand and interpret the gospel of Jesus Christ, God, and humanity against the backdrop of the historical and contemporary experiences of people with disabilities. It has come to to refer to a variety of perspectives and methods designed to give voice to the rich and diverse theological meanings of the human experience of disability. Christians, all people really, but especially Christians, are called to see all people, including and especially those with disabilities, as children of God, defined not by their impairments, but by the fact that they're created and loved by God and in and of itself as such valuable. I ran across an article this week by John Swinton. John Swinton is Chair in Divinity and Religious Studies at the School of Divinity, History, and Philosophy, University of Aberdeen in Scotland. And he's founder of the University Center for Spirituality, Health, and Disability. And he wrote a wonderful article. It's about 35 pages long called, Who is the God We Worship? Theologies of Disability, Challenges, and New Possibilities. I recommend it to your reading if this topic interests you. And if you want it, I will send it to you or send you the link. He describes and critiques the social science and theological thinking surrounding disability and its practical impact as it is developing in our time. This is a developing theology. There's no time here to summarize all the things he says in the paper, so I go immediately to his conclusion. And he speaks of the difference between rights and love. We can fight for the rights of people with disabilities, and we should do that. But listen carefully. Without love or friendship or relationship, rights fall short. They end up empty. Friendship requires justice. But justice requires friendship for its actuation. To be loved by God and to receive that which the unknowable God chooses to offer is not an action dependent on capabilities. It is a gift given by God to human beings through the friendships of Jesus and mediated to all people through human friendship. The lame man at the temple had the right to alms, the money of Peter and John. This was how society was set up. Almsgiving blessed the one who received and perhaps just as much, if not more, the one who gave. This was embedded in the Jewish societal structure. It was a blessing to give as much as to receive. And that's true still of many societies around the world. Almsgiving was the social safety net. So the man was given the right. He had his right to receive alms. And Peter and John were operating within 
the rights of that society by giving alms. But what the man who was lame needed, I think, I'm certain, was more than money, more than his rights. Luke describes in great detail what happened, and it's a little bit subtle, but listen for these themes. Peter and John come up to the man, and Peter directs his gaze at the man, as did John. Okay, So Peter stops. He doesn't just throw some coins in the, in the basket. He stops and he looks at it. He directs his gaze. And he says to the man, look at us. I don't know if you've ever been in a third world, world country and, and, and experienced beggars, but oftentimes they don't look because all kinds of reasons which you can easily imagine. Peter and John says, look at us. We see you. See us. And the man fixed his attention on them. And Peter says, I don't have silver and gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then Peter reaches out and takes him by the hand. There's human touch. And assisted him. Maybe put his arm around his shoulders. Remember the man was over 40 and had never walked. Raised him up. And then the man entered the temple. And Luke says with them. And later on in verse 11. Which we didn't read. It says while he clung to Peter and John. And the next day after Peter and John. Had spent a night in prison. And were called before the rulers, elders and scribes. Luke tells us that the man who was healed was standing beside them. So you can imagine that in this period of 24 hours, this man didn't leave their side. They were in prison for the night, so then I don't know where he was. But in this whole period of time, this man is with them. The focus of this story, you see, is not about the healing. It's about people meeting people and especially a marginalized person meeting the community of believers, and it's about Jesus meeting people. As a result of that meeting, the man who was lame was healed, and that healing included and led to would not have been complete without his being drawn into contact with Peter and John, relationship and community. And I think that is one reason why this detailed story of healing at the end of chapter 4 ends with another description of the community of believers. We're not reading all of these chapters, but if you look at it, if you haven't looked at it already, the end of the story, there's another description of this community of believers. They have everything in common not needing alms anymore because no one, there was not a needy person among them. What's different about this story and the healings done in the Gospels is that now something fundamental has happened that has changed the world. Jesus has died and has risen again. He's the king over all. And the course of history has changed. And the new community, this colony of God's kingdom, is being formed, and that community, that colony, recognizes people, and especially those who are marginalized fully, by giving them their rights, ensuring their rights are being, being, 
they have their rights and by loving you. That's what's new here. This healed man is brought into community because that's what the spirit, that's what the kingdom, that's what Jesus does. Empire does neither of those things. You might say, oh, in the empire of the United States, we pay a lot of attention to disability, and we do. But history has shown us that when push comes to shove, the kingdom of darkness, the empire, does not give a fig for your rights. It will always trample your rights if your rights come in the way of its grab for power, wealth, and sex. Empire is never about relationship. The priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, realized this. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 1. After the healing of the lame man, Peter made a speech and told why he had done what they had done. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. They were greatly annoyed. Why? Because Peter and John were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They were so annoyed that they took them and put them in prison. And the next day they charged them not to teach or speak at all in the name of Jesus. Why were they so annoyed by this? In Jewish thinking, the resurrection from the dead was the sign that the Messiah had come and the new age had dawned. N.T. Wright puts it this way. Resurrection functioned for the Pharisees not as an abstract doctrine about what happens to God's people or anybody after they die, but as a statement about the great turnaround within Israel's fortunes that would shortly take place and about the fact that when this event happened, those who had been loyal to Torah, to the law of Moses, but had died ahead of time, would be raised to share in the blessings of the age to come. In other words, when the age came, the age to come came, the resurrection would have happened. And all people, especially the Torah followers, would be raised. That's what resurrection meant. It wasn't a future thing. It was a now thing. That's how you knew that the kingdom was there. That's why they were so annoyed. They're proclaiming the resurrection from the dead. The Romans are still here. The priests were the theologians charged with performing and protecting the ceremonial rituals. The captain of the temple was the law enforcement officer charged with keeping the peace. The Sadducees were also theologians, but they did not believe in the resurrection. They were concerned, not about a doctrine, 
that spoke of their personal survival in a future life. But they were concerned about a doctrine that would pose a threat to the survival of their power within the present order. If the Jesus whom they had crucified, because that's what Peter accused them of doing very clearly here again, had risen again, then the defining moment of history had happened. And they were on the wrong side of it. Their nationalism was threatened. They believed that the survival of their people was at stake. And there is only one way that unrepentant nationalism responds to Jesus and to threats to its power, and that is with violence. And if you want to see proof of that, think back to January 6, 2021. The only way unrepentant nationalism knows to stop the threat to its power is violence. And as the community of Jesus followers grew and more and more people believed, the response of the Jewish leaders became more and more violent. And we're going to see this in the next chapters of Acts. Leaders are getting more and more violent. So what was the response of this Jesus-following community to the opposition put up by empire? And again, we're thinking of the end of Acts 4 now with this community as it's described again with a few thousand more people added, including the man who was lame. And the leaders and the Jews were putting pressure on them, saying, we'll throw you in prison you talk about this anymore. So what did they do? They were resolved and committed to their statement of faith, as as Peter put it in Acts chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. They focused their eyes on this Jesus, their king. Whatever happens around us, He's our leader. He's our king. There is nowhere else we can go for the salvation that we need. And they prayed. Lord, look upon their threats. Grant to us, your servants, to continue to speak with your words with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They came in prayer. We talked about this last week in this pressure cooker of violent nationalism. And they prayed, Lord, help us to be a healing force in the community. And the Holy Spirit filled them and gave them boldness. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And then, as we've mentioned before, Luke describes the kind of community they formed with each other. No one had any need. So now we're seeing like twice in a row, Pentecost leading to community. And the healing of this lame man leading to community. 
And finally, I think this story is intended to remind us of the prophet Isaiah and his words in chapter 35. And as I read them, just think about them in the context of what happened in the Jerusalem, those 40 to 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. The lame man. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. See the walking? Even if they are fools, it's hope for me, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. It's a picture of community, picture of God's people walking along the way of holiness. All those who were marginalized, all those who struggled with weakness and sin and disability of whatever kind, all being brought into this great community centered around Zion, around the presence of Jesus Christ himself. And made whole, everlasting joy, gladness, and sorrow, and sighing shall flee, shall flee away. That's what the kingdom of God is about. That's what the kingdom of Jesus is about. And these chapters, early chapters of Acts, offer us the initial picture of what that looked like, especially with this man who was lame. Not just being healed, but more importantly, brought into the community. The community that in and of itself is called to be a healing force in the world in which we find ourselves.